I want to begin today with just a statement about reality, and that's this, that there are certain things that our world has a hard time believing. There's just certain things that when they happen, people go, oh, I'm, I'm not sure I can get on board with that, or I'm not sure that I can accept that. And one of the things that I've found that's really hard for people to believe is forgiveness. Forgiveness is an idea that is really great and exciting when we're the ones needing to be forgiven. But when we watch somebody else do something wrong to someone else or to us, we're like, I'm not sure I can get on board with this forgiveness idea. And we saw this happen a couple times that I wanted to point out in in recent American history. In October of 2006, in uh, western Pennsylvania, the Amish community was rocked when a man walked into a one-room schoolhouse. And he shot and killed five children and injured five others. And in the days that followed, the, the, the nation was just um, in disbelief as that community publicly came out and forgave the shooter, embraced his widow, and said, we forgive you. Because people are just like, I don't know how you do that. I, I don't know if I can get on board with that. I'm not sure I can believe that's possible. If you fast forward the, the kind of history about eight years, in the summer of 2014, a young man entered a traditionally black, sorry, black uh, Episcopal church in Charleston, South Carolina. And after attending a large portion of a Bible study, he pulled out a weapon and he opened fire. And I believe nine people were killed that day. And a couple days later at his bond hearing in court, person after person from the church stood up to speak and said, we forgive this man. And our country just said, what? What? How do, you, how do you forgive somebody like that? How do you get to the place where you've grown to be able to forgive the person who, who murdered your children or murdered your friend? And, and, and as we watch those stories of forgiveness, it, it just kind of goes, hey, how do I wrap my head around those realities? I mean, can God really change someone's heart and their pattern of behavior so they can get to the place that they can forgive somebody like that? Is that really possible? I mean, and if it's possible for them, is it possible for me too? One of my favorite stories of, of that kind of heart change involves a man in this picture. Most people know this guy, you know, for the peace sign that he gave as he walked away. But one of Richard Nixon's closest aides was this man here on the right, Charles Colson. And Charles Colson was about as bad as a dude could get. He's the kind of person you wouldn't leave your wife, your kids, even your grandmother with. Because he famously said, I will run over my own grandmother to get Nixon reelected. Not somebody you look up to, not somebody you want to be like. And, and as you know the story of Nixon's White House collapsing around Watergate, Nixon, sorry, Colson played a role in that. And so one night as it's preparing to, indictments are happening and, you know, there's talk conversation about Nixon's resignation. Charles Colson tells a story that he went to his friend Tom's house for dinner. And Tom had recently become a follower of Jesus. And as he sat down with Tom, he wanted to learn more about the changes he saw in Tom's life because what he was seeing, he didn't believe because he had known Tom for so long and he saw these these radical changes in Tom. And so as he was talking to Tom that night, this is what Chuck Colson said. He said, that night he read to me from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, particularly a chapter about the great sin that is pride. A proud man, according to Lewis, is always walking through life, looking down on other people and other things, said Lewis. And as a result, he cannot see something above himself 
immeasurably superior God. That was me. I was so full of myself. I was so full of my own pride and my ego. I couldn't see anything bigger than myself, which was God. And, and Tom was trying to explain this to Colson that day. And he said, hey, would you be willing to pray with me? And, and Colson's like, I'll pass. I'll read the book, but I'll pass. And he walked outside and, and Colson says, I got in my car. He says, I could not drive away. Here's what he said. He said, when I got my car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy. I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I did not know what to say. I just knew that I needed Jesus and he came into my life. That was his moment of change in the midst of his world falling apart. Later on, he would say, the truth is that is uttermost in my mind today is that God isn't finished. As long as we're alive, he's at work in our lives. And if you were around during this era, you knew that a lot of people, when Colson became a public Christian, people said, no way, not that guy. I know that guy, you know, he had his own version of grandma got run over by a reindeer. You know, it was like grandma got run over by Colson, you know, like that was, that was the song. And yet what we saw in the decades to come was Colson did go to prison for his crimes and then devoted his life to reforming the American prison system through prison fellowship and to see the rate of recidivism and the real genuine change happen in the lives of others. I say all of that because today our, our big idea is this. Nothing is more exciting than watching or participating in God changing someone's life. There is nothing more exciting and there is nothing more meaningful than either playing a role or watching somebody's life change. Now, the hard part is sometimes that change is hard to believe, especially if you're the kind of person who's skeptical or cynical by nature. You go, I'm not sure I buy that. Maybe even today you're like, Scott, you're a pastor. You should believe in this, but I don't believe people can change. Well, here's the thing. You may not believe it. I'm accepting it. But I believe that what God is in the business of doing still is changing lives. My life is a testimony to it. Jim was up here with a testimony to it. And if I had time that I could bring up hundreds of people from this room and the next service who could tell you about how their life has been changed. And that is what is exciting. And as a church, we have some core values that define who we are. Elvis Presley famously said that values are like fingerprints. Nobody's are the same, but we leave them all over the things that we say and do. And so at different points throughout this year, when we're after one series and before another series, we're talking about some of our core values as a church, some of those unique fingerprints that we have. And today's core value we call fighting for simplicity. And at the heart of this value is a belief that God is still in the business of changing lives. That he's still in the business of growing us up into people we've never been before. And here's how we define this value. If you have the handout, it's at the top of the handout. This is what we wrote. We are a simple church with a passion for transformation. We focus on a map of next steps rather than a menu of programs. And in each step, we refuse to settle for merely learning new information. With a bias for application, we seek to live what we learn together. There's eight of these values. You can find them on our website on the values page. And today, I want to talk to you about the value we call fighting for simplicity. 
And to do that, I want to take you to a passage of scripture that I think is maybe the best kind of summary of this value. It's in the book of Colossians, which is near the back of your Bible. There's four books that come together, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I learned that order by memorizing General Electric Power Company. So if you have a Bible, that's just a little tip for today. But we're going to read verses 24 to 29 of Colossians 1. Kelly, if you wouldn't mind advancing those for me upstairs. And I want to invite everybody to stand as we honor God's word this morning and read from it. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. Here's what Paul says. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Jesus, may the ears and the eyes and the hearts that we have be open to you today for us to show you how you want us to grow and change. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, Paul here is writing a letter to a church in a city called Colossae that he's played an instrumental role in in the past. And he's writing a letter back to them after having been with them, talking about what his work is for them. And, and you might be saying, hey, so, so what is Paul saying here? If you could sum up those six verses with a lot of big words and a lot of gusto, here's how I would sum up what Paul is saying in those six verses. He's saying, I'm giving my life away so you can look more like Jesus. And he uses really strong language. If your Bible is still open, he says that, that I am in some ways picking up where Christ's suffering left off. And I'm doing the same for you. What is Christ suffering? The cross. He's saying, I'm giving my life away for you in the same vein that Jesus gave his life away so that the work that I'm doing will help you to become everything that God wants you to be. Because what he's saying here is that he wants to see everyone grow up and become everything that God made them to be. At the end of that passage, he uses a word mature. And we think about that word and we think about physical growth or, or maybe age. The Greek word that's translated into English mature is the word telos. And it means completion or wholeness. And he's saying, hey, I'm giving my life away so that you can come up and become everything that God made you to be. I'm giving my life so you can grow, so you can change. And what he does here is really interesting. He, he kind of hearkens back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis 1, where God said, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Every single person who's alive today was made in the image of God. Now, for many people, that image has been marred and broken and fragmented by sin they were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God. And what Paul is saying is people were made in the image of God. And now what I'm laboring for, he says this in Colossians 1 is to allow God to make known this mystery 
to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, so if you're not Jewish, that's you. The glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So every person was made in the image of God. And now, Paul says, we want to see you grow up into the image of Christ. So you were made in the image of God. You sinned. You made choices that were not God's will. You made a mess of your life. Then Jesus comes and dies on the cross that you might now be reborn into the image of Christ And if you've spent time or anybody who goes to church or follows Jesus, you know that that transformation and growth and change is not instantaneous. You don't get baptized and boom, you're a perfect person. The the biblical word for this is sanctification. It is the process of us growing and changing so that one day we are Christ in us. And what Paul says is this is the hope of glory. You if you're a follower of Jesus, are the hope of glory. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and at work in you and it's transforming you. And Paul says, I'm giving my life away for that because there's nothing more exciting than that. And so we as a church, we have a passion to see that happen in your life. We have a passion for transformation. We believe that God still changes lives. And what we're trying to do is what Dallas Willard talks about. It's discipleship. Discipleship, according to Willard, is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. So that this is all about. If Jesus was Scott, who would Jesus be? Because each of us are uniquely created in the image of God. And so Christianity is not a giant cloning operation. Jim and I are different. Josh and I are different. Steffi and I are different. You and I are different. And yet, we can all look like Jesus if we become who Jesus would be if he were us. And so with the time I have left today, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about how do we seek that growth and change at Cornerstone? How do we pursue that? And we do it through this value we call fighting for simplicity. So if you have your notes, there's four things that I want you to write down and fill some blanks in. Here's the first one. We follow a simple approach to church and following Jesus. The value begins that we are a simple church with a passion for transformation. And, and this, this value of simplicity, I think, is best expressed in some place that many of you have already been this weekend, or you may go later this weekend to the grocery store. And what I want to talk to you about today is what I call the ketchup problem. I know we've got a problem with the environment and nuclear weapons and, you know, forms of government and there's wars going on, but one of the biggest problems we have today is ketchup. I went to the grocery store this week, and you know what I found? I found that there were 20 different kinds of ketchup at the store. You go, Scott, that isn't that bad. It's 20. There were 40 different kinds of mayonnaise. 40. Seriously? I had two questions as I was standing there, bewildered. My first question was this. Why do we need so many kinds of ketchup or mayonnaise? And second of all, second question, how on earth do you choose? Have you stood there at a grocery store and there are so many options and you're just kind of, I don't have to choose? Well, I think we're not that different. 
I think what you do is what I do. When you're like, I've got 20 options of ketchup and 40 options of mayonnaise. Here's what we do. We go for what we know or for what's cheapest. There's a brand you always buy and you grab that one or you go, you know what? I'm going to be cheap today. And we're all selectively cheap, you know? Somebody in your family is really cheap with something random, but they're not about something else. And we all have those different things. Some of you are cheap with ketchup. And so you just go for that store brand that's on sale. Oh, three for $5. I'm going to get three. And, and what scientists have found as they've studied our reactions is that when it comes to stuff like ketchup and mayonnaise, is that choice actually paralyzes us. Our world says we need more choices. But actually, the more choices we get, the harder we find it to make a choice. That's what happens to me whenever I go to Cheesecake Factory. That menu is longer than some books I read. I mean, it's just, it's like 20-something pages. Are you ready, sir? No, I haven't. I'm not even on page four yet. Come back later. And so as a church, here's the thing. We don't want to be that ketchup aisle. We don't want to be so complex and give you so many options that it paralyzes you. And so what we do is that we follow a more simple approach. At Cornerstone, we, we emphasize four steps. Gathering on Sundays in worship, connecting in a group with other people during the week, serving on a team in an area where you're gifted, and then engaging the people around you and sharing your faith with them. Those are the four steps that we try to encourage everybody to take as a church. And what's amazing is some, some of you have done a great job at this. I shared this last week, but what we saw in 2022 was we saw a 20% growth in our groups and serving teams. It means a bunch of you took some of those steps last year. You got involved in a group for the first time, or you started serving for the first time. And that's awesome. Bravo. I hope that you're seeing what we believe will happen is that you'll begin to make relationships, build connections, take your next steps of faith. But here's the thing. Our lives, our lives are not that simple. I, I had a, a collage made with our designer this week. If you think about your refrigerator, your library, the desktop of your computer, that junk drawer in your house that you and your spouse fight over, I'm holding on to it tight, even though my wife hates it. The calendar, the email inbox, your garage, your closet, everything in your life drifts towards complexity. It just gets stuffed with more and more stuff, more and more events, more and more books, more and more clothes. You have to dig in there to figure out why does the fridge smell? Hopefully one person in your family is that person who always cleans out the refrigerator before you buy new stuff. It's my wife. She said recently, where, what is this? How long has this been in here? I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't clean the refrigerator out last week while you were gone. But if this is where our lives drift, then we have to fight to keep things simple. We have to fight to make sure that our yeses are going to the most important things. And there's some of you guys, your takeaway from today is you need to learn a little two-letter word. No. For some of you, it's a four-letter word that has two letters. But you will not experience growth and change if you say yes to everything. Because you know what I've learned in life? Every time you say yes, you're saying no to something else. And if you want to have room in your life to say yes to something new, you're going to have to say no to something else. And so as a church, we use our no a lot. 
so that we can stay focused and available for the things that God wants us to say yes to. See, we live in a culture that's busy and bloated and burned out. And if that's the case, normal isn't a standard to emulate. I mean, this is our culture. How are you doing? I'm busy. How are you doing? I'm burned out. Can you meet? Yeah, for lunch? Hey, let's have, let's have coffee in three weeks with your best friend. Friends, that's normal. And normal can't be the standard when normal is unhealthy. And so as a church, we're following a simple pattern and we're inviting other, people's to, other people to join us and rejecting complexity and fighting for simplicity. Now, I will tell you that we'll get to these other values as we go on this year, but we have another value called equipping people to live out their faith in public. And what that value is, is it's giving people what they need to navigate a really hard culture. So you might say, Scott, you guys do gather and connect and serve and engage. Is that it to following Jesus? No. You know this. There's more than four things to following Jesus. But we're going to focus there, and we're going to equip people without compromising the simplicity. And I could go more on that one, but that value is coming later this year, so you'll have to wait for that one. Number two, second, second thing, we're always looking for our next steps. As a church, we are always looking for our next steps. If you were here last week, I gave a whole sermon on this. I won't, won't, won't re-preach it. But, but as a church, our mission is to help people take their next steps with Jesus. That's why we exist. We believe that everybody has a next step. And so every message ends with next steps. And we're always counting next steps. And we're always talking about next steps. Because we believe that the way you get from where you are to maturity in Christ is a series of steps. Now, in Hebrews 6.1, we see this really important reminder about next steps. The writer says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. What the writer is saying is, hey, there's a season for you to be at a beginner. All of us started out life not knowing how to walk. No one came out of the womb and you were like running the 40 in, you know, sub four. We all had to learn by stumbling and falling how to walk. And the same thing's true with following Jesus. We all start out with elementary basics about Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews saying is eventually it's time for you to move from the elementary to the maturity. I, I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, accepts us as we are, but by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. And so some of you today, you need to, to know that you don't need to get your life cleaned up to come to church. You don't need to get your life put together to experience the grace of God. God meets you where you are, mess and all. But if you've already met that, and it's been years, you may be in a place that it's time for you to move from the elementary teachings to take your next step towards maturity. That's the, he doesn't leave us where we are. God meets us in our mess, but he doesn't just say, okay, keep making it. You're good now. No, he helps us to grow in that grace. And what we say at Cornerstone is that, that grace doesn't empower sin or indulge immaturity. God's grace meets us where we are, but it doesn't leave us there. And so it calls us to more. This is what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. I'm giving my life away, not that you could stay where you were, but so that God could take you somewhere you could have never been on your own. 
If you've been there when a baby was taking its first steps, you didn't go step, step, fall. Awesome. Have a seat. Never walk again. You say, hey, try again. Keep going. Take more steps. And sometimes in falling, Jesus, we forget that. We forget that, that God meeting us with grace is awesome, but growing in grace is awesome too. And so as a church, we're always trying to say, hey, what are your next steps? What are our next steps? And that's why I would say this. If you don't want to be challenged, Cornerstone may be the church for you. Last week, somebody said I gave the church a spanking. I thought that was a little bit strong. But there are going to be times where you're going to get pushed. You're going to be uncomfortable. And, and, and that's a thing that we value at Cornerstone. It's holy discomfort. Because if you want to be comfortable, you're not going to like Jesus. Look at his disciples. They were constantly uncomfortable. And in our culture, we've elevated comfort to the highest value. I get it. You're in nice, comfortable seats right now. You got cup holders. If you're watching from home and you're in your pajamas on your lazy boy, I mean, does it get more comfortable than that? But comfort is not a fruit of the Spirit. And it isn't a commitment that Jesus Christ made to us. He said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we're taking our next steps. It's going to probably be towards discomfort. Third thing, we have a bias towards application. There's lots of conversations in our world today about bias. And bias in general, especially when you're unaware of it, is not a great thing. But we all have bias. All of us do. And as a church, we admit that we have a bias and it's towards application. And so every Sunday, we strive to preach messages that are biblical, relevant, and practical. Biblical that, that they're based upon this book and they line up with this book. Relevant, they actually meet you where you live. And practical that you go, hey, I know what to do with this when I leave. And the reason that we do that is according to James chapter 1. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He said this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. This is obviously pre-selfie back in the first century. He says, but he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. That's why, to me, the test of what happens in this time on Sunday is not Sunday. It's tomorrow. It's the next day. It's what are you going to do with it? A lot of you have heard and forgotten 50, 100, 500, 1,000 sermons. That's why I stay humble, because I know a lot of you are going to forget what I say today. But it isn't about, hey, I gave you new insight. It's, did you take the insight I gave you, and did you convert it into change? Change comes as we apply God's word. He didn't give it to us for knowledge. He gave it to us that we might apply it. And this is why, this may be a harsh statement for some of you, but it's true. Studying the Bible is not enough. You have to do what it says. Studying your Bible is not the finish line. Applying it is. Putting it into action is. Scott, I've memorized a lot of the Bible. Good. 
How much of what you've memorized are you living out? I read the whole Bible cover to cover, Scott, last year. Awesome. Good for you. You're one of maybe one in five Christians who's done that. But the things that you learned reading all 66 books, how much of that are you living? My dad told me that there is preaching. He's a preacher. And there's meddling. And they're different things. I'm going to shift from preaching and meddling for a second. Sometimes activity at church and activity for God can get in the way of doing what God has actually called you to do. Let me give some examples. Husbands. It's easier to go to a men's Bible study than it is to go home and be vulnerable with your wife. And sometimes we prefer to go and learn another Bible study than we do to show up and work on our marriage. Even if the Bible study you're in is about marriage. Sometimes activity for God can get in the way of obeying God. Ladies, wives, it can be easier to go to brunch and complain about your husband than it is to go home and work on your relationship with your husband. It's easier to talk about someone than it is to talk with them and work on the relationship. Singles. It's easier to do a Bible study on dating than it is to open up a dating app and navigate the cesspool of humanity on that dating app. See what I'm saying? Sometimes we use studying the Bible as a way from hiding, from obeying the Bible. I should do another Bible study. No. How about you obey the last Bible study you did before you do a new one? And that's what a bias for application is. It's saying, hey, I'm going to be a doer of the word. And sometimes it means I pause learning more information so that my application can catch up to my learning. Meddling over. Last one. Together we live out what we learn. Together we live out what we learn. If you're going to live out and do what scripture says, you're going to need people. You can't do it by yourself. There's two passages in the book of Acts that are kind of like the, the pinnacle or the dream vision people have of church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 4, 32 to 37. They're beautiful pictures of the church being on mission and living out God's word together. And I think sometimes we just forget the basic piece. That as soon as Jesus left... They didn't all go their separate ways, but they kept getting together day after day after day because they knew they couldn't live out what they'd learned by themselves. You can't do Christianity by yourself. You can't. You will not grow up, as Colossians 1 says, into Christ in you, the hope of glory. You will not become that person mature, complete, and full in Christ if you do it by yourself. Now, I know that some of you, the reason that you do that is because some other people in the church hurt you and wounded you. I get it, because I have those wounds too. And I get it that the only way to be in relationship is to risk vulnerability. We learned that last month in our previous series. But if you don't risk vulnerability and you don't enter a relationship, you will not become everything that Jesus died for you to be. 
because you can't live out what he's teaching you by yourself. Eventually, you're going to need help. And so as a church, we're committed together that we live out what we learn together. And we need other people to help us take these next steps with Jesus. So this is why I said at the beginning that nothing is more exciting than watching or participating in someone's life being changed. And as a church, we're really passionate about that. And that's why we're simple. Because we don't want to let anything get in the way of this. And so we've got some next steps for you, as you've come to expect. And those in the back of your handout if you're new. Here's the first one. I want to encourage you to consider making Cornerstone your home in a more intentional way. Because we've got a passion to help you grow. Say, Scott, how could I get more involved in an intentional way? Well, you might actually decide to do this old school thing called membership. Last Sunday, we had over 500 people who were in a service here or watching online. We have about 120 people who are members. And the reason is twofold. One, we don't push it a lot. And two, a lot of you get queasy when you think about going hardcore committed to a church. Because you're here because something happened in another church that you don't want to repeat. And maybe it's time for you to commit in a more intentional way. Maybe it's time for you to get involved in a group or serve. A bunch of you took applications last week to serve in kids ministry. And maybe your next step is to turn the application in. We're not celebrating how many applications were taken. We're going to celebrate how many applications get turned in. Maybe it's for you to begin giving. Maybe God has used this church to help you grow, but that's because somebody else gave. Maybe it's time for you to give so that somebody else can grow. Maybe it's to pray. We said last week we asked you to pray for two things. Let me just tell you what I found is you start praying for something, your heart gets attached. So maybe it's to start praying for our church. That's number one. Number two, celebrate the transformation you see in someone else's life. It can be really hard in your own life to see the change, but it's way easier to see it in someone else. And most of us don't feel like we're making progress when we're making progress. So this week, what I want you to do is at least one person, call them, grab them in the lobby over mints, text them at your group, talk to them and say, hey, in the last year, this is what I've seen God do in you. This is the change I've seen in you. They may go, really? I don't see that. But if you see that, say it because they may not feel like they're changing even as you're blown away watching them change. And we have a hard time celebrating. We're not good celebrators. Typically, it takes something like on the count, like a birthday or somebody leaving to celebrate. But I think that love, joy, I mean, joy is a fruit of the spirit. We gotta be better at celebrating. And then finally, number three, identify an area in your life where complexity in your life is getting in the way of following Jesus. Some of you need to do a spiritual version of spring cleaning in your life and say no to some things and simplify some things that are getting in the way so that you can follow Jesus and experience that change that he wants to bring. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you're in the business of changing lives, that you're still changing lives, and that we've experienced that ourselves. We pray that we might see clear-eyed all the things that are in the way, 
and do what it is in our power and agency to do to remove those things. We can't make ourselves like Jesus. That's the power of your Holy Spirit within us. But we can open ourselves up to your work. We can get some help from others in the process. And we can remove the barriers. I pray that in this year of 2023, you would do profound growth and change in our midst. And I pray you'd show us today the people around us who were watching change because of your grace. And I pray that we'd help them to acknowledge that and celebrate that. Thank you for giving us each other. And thank you for finishing the work you start in us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.